I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the 17th chapter, the first four verses. The first four verses in the 17th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. Now I want to call attention particularly tonight, as I did last Sunday night before, to the statements in the second and third verses, where we are told that Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them in the synagogue, and there three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Now, I want particularly tonight to deal with that first argument that uh, Paul put forward, namely that Christ must needs have suffered. Now, in these verses, we are given this little cameo, this picture of what was invariably this great apostle's method. Here is the great preacher of the Christian gospel, the greatest evangelist that the church has ever known or ever will know, the mighty apostle Paul. Here he is, and we see him doing in Thessalonica what he did wherever he went. We are given an insight into his method as well as into his message. And uh, we began considering this last Sunday evening. The thing we then emphasized was this, that the apostle had one theme and one theme only, and he preached it everywhere. It was this Jesus. The apostle didn't have to look uh, for his themes or something to preach about from the gossip and the talk of the people at the time. They hadn't newspapers in those days, so he clearly couldn't find his sermons in newspapers. But they had what corresponded to newspapers. They talked to one another. We are told that they did that in Athens. They did it everywhere else. They met one another and they said, Have you heard so-and-so? This has been reported. That's being said. There was the gossip and the talk and the news spread then in very much the same way as it does now, though through a different medium. Now, the apostle, he didn't take his themes from things that were happening. He always had this one theme wherever he was, and whatever might be happening to the world round and about them. And this one Jesus, this Jesus whom he alleged is the Christ of God. And we saw that he preached and presented this one great theme of his in a very characteristic manner. He told them the facts about 
this Christ, but he didn't stop at that. His method essentially was one of reasoning. He reasoned with them out of the scriptures. And he took the scriptures, the Old Testament, and he opened it out, opening. He displayed them, he expounded them. He read them and he showed what they meant. He opened the scriptures. And then having done that, he made certain propositions. He propounded certain things. He alleged. That's what it means. And all that he said that everywhere you found the Old Testament pointing forward to some deliverer that was going to come, a Messiah, a Christ. He took them through the scriptures and he showed them that. And then he said, well now then, that is what the prophecy says. Now I'm going to tell you about this Jesus. And he showed them how the events and facts in connection with the life of Jesus of Nazareth corresponded exactly and precisely, down even into details, with all that the Old Testament had been saying about this coming deliverer, this Messiah. So he said, this Jesus which I preach unto you is the Christ. And that, as I pointed out, was the reason why he preached always on this theme. It was the momentous character of the message. And, of course, there is nothing that is in any way comparable to this. It's stupendous. And I indicated by way of illustration at the end that if that was true in the days of the apostle, it is equally true today. The world, as I reminded you, is staggered and uh, amazed by all that it's reading in the newspapers about these bums and things like that. But my dear friend, however great a fact uh, this hydrogen bomb may be, by the sight of this fact which I'm preaching to you, it's a mere nothing. It's a wonderful achievement, of course. It shows the ability and the understanding and the learning of men. But when you put it by the side of this, it pales into insignificance. The most stupendous thing that's ever happened in this world or that ever will happen was that thing which took place when the eternal Son of God was born as a babe in Bethlehem. That's the most staggering, the most stupendous thing that has ever taken place or ever will take place. Your very calendar bears its witness to it. We are living in 1954. Why? Why 1954? Because it dates from that. It's the pivot of history. It's the center of the whole story of the human race. And when you are considering this, why nothing else really is significant. Everything takes on its significance from this. So the apostle, I say, went everywhere and he preached that Jesus is the Christ, that this is God's way of salvation, that this is indeed the only begotten Son of God who has come on earth to redeem mankind and to deliver it out of its terrible predicament. But of course he didn't stop at that. And we are reminded here by these words we are looking at tonight that he didn't stop at that. Because the moment the apostle said that, he was raising a very great problem. He went round and he said that the despised carpenter of Nazareth called Jesus 
was none other than the eternal Son of God, who had taken unto him human nature, and had lived amongst us in the likeness of sinful flesh. But the moment he said that, there arose an acute problem in the mind of every Jew, in the mind of every Greek, in the mind of those who had been brought up with the Old Testament scriptures, in the mind of all the philosophers and all the learned people of Europe. And what was the problem? Well, the problem was this. If Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the eternal only begotten Son of God, what about his death upon the cross? How can these things be reconciled? What's the use of saying on the one hand that that person is indeed eternal God, very God of very God, and yet to have to say and to have to admit that he was arrested by men and that he was condemned and in apparent utter weakness was nailed to a cross and expired and died and was buried and his body placed in a grave? That's the question. And it was a question that was raised acutely, I say, wherever the apostle went and preached this message. We are told that this message of his was indeed a stumbling block to the Jews and that to the Greeks it was unutterable folly. They said it's monstrous. And yet it was a part of the apostles' preaching because it was an essential vital element in the facts uh, concerning this blessed person. And the apostle being a truthful man like all the other apostles had to give all the facts. And indeed he went further. He placed this in the very forefront of all his preaching. But I say at once, it constituted a terrible problem. People stumbled at it. Well now, my friends, I'm calling your attention to it because people still stumble at it. The offense of the cross has not disappeared. It's as great tonight as it was in the first century. People put it like this, don't they? They say, yes, it's all right. We are prepared to listen about Jesus of Nazareth. We are prepared to hear everything you've got to say about his incomparable teaching. We are ready to grant you that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest ethical manifesto that the world has ever known. We are prepared to agree with you that the world has never seen or known such a person. There was a majesty about him. There was something inexplicable about him. Though he'd been born in a humble manner and had been brought up in a humble home, and though he'd worked with his hands as a carpenter, he was obviously outstanding and he could confound the doctors of the law and all the learned people, the greatest religious genius of all times. We'll grant you all that and we'll like to hear about it. They may even go on to say, we'll grant you his miracles. We'll grant you that he did things, obviously, which men had never done before, and thereby attracted attention to himself, and asserted and authenticated his own authority and his own claim. They say, that's all right. And as we look at him in that way, we can put him into the category that contains Plato and Socrates, and Buddha and Muhammad and the great religious teachers and geniuses of all the centuries, that's all right. But, you Christian people, they say, 
You always will go on to talk about that cross and about that death of his and about his blood. I heard a very intelligent man saying this very thing last summer when I was on my holidays. I got involved in and was called into and invited into a discussion that was taking place between two very intelligent professional men, one a Christian and one not a Christian. And the very intelligent non-Christian men put it like this quite bluntly. He didn't want to be offensive, he said, but he'd got to put it in this way. He said, I'm interested in religion. I'm interested, he said, in Jesus Christ. But he said, what I can't understand is the way in which my friend here will bring in this blood and thunder business. Those were his words. This blood and thunder business. I remember another man who now, thank God, has been a Christian for nearly 27 years, some 26 and a half years. But I remember that man 27 years to just about this time of the year before his conversion saying the same thing more or less. He said, I can't understand why you evangelical Christians must always be wallowing in blood. Oh, that's what he said, and a very intelligent man again. And I say that that is the kind of thing that's still being said. This cross, this death, this blood. Why this, they say. That's the problem. It was the problem then, and that's why the Apostle Paul deals with it. Because, you see, in spite of knowing that the cross and the preaching of the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews, and that it was folly to the Greeks. He nevertheless determined not to know anything among them, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Indeed, he tells us in writing to the Galatians that he placarded Jesus Christ and him crucified. He put it in the forefront. He put it onto his hoardings, as it were. He put Christ crucified onto the hoardings. He put it so that men would always be seeing it. He did it quite deliberately, in spite of knowing men's reactions to it and their hatred to it. And here we find him entering into this synagogue there at Thessalonica, and we observe that he does exactly the same thing. He reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging what? Well, this, that Christ must needs have suffered. In other words, that Christ must have gone through the agony of Gethsemane and must have been crucified and borne the pain and the shame and the agony of it all and must have died upon the cross on Calvary's hill. Now, why, I ask again, did he do this? And there's only one answer to the question. And he puts it here in his own words. It is because it is an absolute necessity. It was the Apostle's central message. He had no gospel apart from this. Apart from this initial basic fact of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul has no gospel. He says, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He tells the Corinthians, I'm never tired of forgetting you. He reminds them of what he preached to them when he first went amongst them. What was it? This first and foremost. This he puts at the beginning, this he puts in the center, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the very thing. 
It was, I say, his central message. Well, why then? Why does he put it thus in the forefront as he's uh, reasoning out of the scriptures with these Jews in Thessalonica? Well, the first answer to that question must be this. He had a very special reason for putting this in the forefront when he was dealing with these Jews in the synagogue. Why? Well, for this reason. These Jews, you see, had got their Old Testament scriptures, and they knew that the Old Testament scriptures did prophesy the coming of a Messiah. Ah, yes, but they'd got a completely wrong and totally erroneous conception as to what the Messiah was going to be like, and as to what he was going to do, and as to how he was going to save them. The idea that they'd got, we needn't stay with us, but the idea that they had in its essence was a political one. Mankind has always been political. That's because mankind always thinks in terms of this world only. It's not wrong to be political, but it is wrong to think of ultimate salvation in a political manner. And that's what these Jews were doing. Their idea of the Messiah was this, that he'd come as a great king. And that he'd announce himself and that he'd be an... Uh, crowned in Jerusalem that he'd gather together a great army and at this time in particular that he'd lead this mighty victorious army against the Roman legions and drive them out of the country and conquer them and perhaps having done that proceed to world conquest and he would reign over all and the Jews would be the supreme nation in the world that was their conception of the Messiah a mighty power a great potentate a great political leader, a mighty warrior king, would re-establish the kingdom of David and conquer all and sundry, and his kingdom would stretch from one end of the world to the other. That was their conception. So that obviously the first thing the apostle has got to do is to disabuse them of that false idea. And the way he did that was just to take them through their own scriptures. He opened and alleged that the Christ must needs have suffered. He took them through these scriptures and he showed them that their own scriptures bore eloquent testimony to this, that the Christ when he came was one who was going to suffer and to die and that it was by suffering and dying he was going to save. He not only says this, he proves it out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that the Christ must needs have suffered. How did he do it? Well, there it is, it's all in the Old Testament. You've only got to read it and you'll find that it's full of it. Our Lord himself, as I reminded you last Sunday night, did the self-same thing himself after he had been crucified and after his resurrection. He took those dumbfounded, crestfallen disciples of his who felt that everything had gone wrong and who said, Oh, our wonderful hopes have suddenly been dashed to the ground because he's died in weakness. Oh, fools, he says, and slow of heart to believe what is stated in the scriptures. And commencing with Moses and the Psalms, he takes them right through and through all the prophets and he shows how all these things have prophesied precisely what happened to him. And that's what the apostle did in the synagogue of Thessalonica. I can hear him as he takes them through the book of Leviticus. And as he tells them all about the burnt offering and the peace offering and the sacrifices and all these things, I can hear him as he expounds to them 
what happened on that night when the children of Israel went out of the captivity of Egypt, the killing of the Paschal lamb and all the blood put there upon the doorpost, I can hear him taking them through all these things, all these marvelous types, all this ritual and all this ceremonial, and it's all talking about some lamb and how they must put their hands upon the head of some beast and they transfer their sins and the beast is killed and their sin is put aside and God covers it and they're forgiven again and on they go in the great day of atonement and the high priest and the incense, he takes them through it all and he says, what's all this? Struck, stripes fall upon him. His life poured out into death. He reads them that mighty chapter. And then he possibly read to them the 22nd Psalm, beginning, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that terrifying and most dramatic detailed description of death by crucifixion, a description of death by crucifixion which is unsurpassed in any literature anywhere, it's all there. Read it again, the 22nd Psalm, and you'll see an account of a man who is nailed, crucified to a tree, and all the pain and the agony and the anguish in his bones and the various parts of his body. I can hear him reading it and expounding it all and saying, can't you see, the whole of your Old Testament is pointing to a sufferer to a Messiah that's going to endure agony and that's going to die. The Christ must needs have suffered. The scriptures of the Old Testament had always taught this. And uh, therefore, uh, the apostle's argument was that this Jesus whom he preaches as the Messiah of necessity had to suffer and die in the way that he actually did. Otherwise, he is not the fulfiller of the prophecies. He is not the great antitype that fulfills the types. He is not the substance that casts its light upon the old shadows. If he hadn't done all this, well, then he is not the Messiah. The Christ must needs have suffered, and he has suffered. That was his argument. So you see, my friends, the preaching of this cross is not merely the recital of historical events. We show that this is something that had been predicted and prophesied throughout the centuries leading up to Christ. But you know, this teaching is not confined only to the Old Testament. They are full of it. And there is a sense in which you can't understand the Old Testament unless you go back to it with New Testament eyes. If you really want to understand the Old Testament, get the gospel of the New and then go back and you'll see that it's just a foreshadowing of it. But our Lord himself taught exactly the same thing while he was here in this world as a teacher. And why is it that men will persist in picking out what they like in his teaching and reject the rest? Because he actually said this, you know. He said, as Moses lifted up the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The serpent was taken and put upon a pole and held up. He says, I am going to be lifted up like that. It's his own teaching. Or listen to him again when he said something like this. He said, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Do you remember when he said that and to whom he said it? 
He just worked the miracle of feeding the 5,000 and a great crowd of people were following him. They said, this is marvelous, this is wonderful. We've never heard anything like this before. This is great. We'll go after this man. This man can do anything he likes for us. And they crowded after him. And then he said, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. And they turned to one another and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? Who can take it? Ah, they said he was all right just now when he looked as if he was going to be the king. It was marvelous to hear his teaching. It was thrilling to see this marvelous miracle. But what do you mean by saying, we've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood? We can't stand it. And you know what followed? We read that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walk no more with him. The crowd that had rushed after him rushed back away from him. They hadn't understood his gospel, you see. They'd been drawn by something they didn't understand. They, when they came face to face with this cross, they were offended and back home they went. Temporary believers. And then listen to him as he goes on. I, he said, if I be lifted up, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And then, do you see, knowing that there would be people perhaps in the 20th century who would say, oh yes, of course, what lifting up means is uh, returning to heaven after he died. It's the influence of the risen Jesus. Lest somebody might say that this is added, this spake he concerning the manner of the death which he should die. The lifting up means the lifting up on the cross. It means the crucifixion, the dying. I, if I be crucified, in other words, if I be nailed to the tree, when I am nailed to the tree, will draw all men of all nations unto me. Oh, but he'd always been saying it. He said, I am the good shepherd. We like that, don't we? Yes, but listen. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I lay down my life, he said. Oh, read your gospel according to John and keep your eye on this phrase, the hour. The hour is come that the Son of Man be glorified. Father, what shall I say? Save me from this hour? Not at all. For this hour I came. What is this hour? The hour of his death. The cup, he says again, which the Father giveth me, shall I not drink it? What's the cup? It's still the same. It's this death, this cruel, agonizing death upon the cross. Oh, but we might have summed it all up in this, in this great phrase, which is known to all of us. Listen, the Son of Man, he says, is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What's a ransom? A price paid that others might be set free. And he's come not as a great king to be ministered unto and to be attended upon. He's come to minister, to be a servant, and to give his life a ransom price for many. Oh, I've merely given you a selection of some of the things he said. The whole of the Old Testament says this is the way. He himself says it's the way. And then, do you see, he supports what he has taught by his actions. 
There is no more wonderful phrase in the scripture than this. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. His own followers said to him, Master, they said, don't go to Jerusalem. Because, they said, if you do, we can tell you what's going to happen. Herod the king is determined to take you and to kill you. Don't go, they said. They pleaded with him. They tried to persuade him not to go. And though he knew that what they said was right, he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. He went deliberately, knowing what was to happen. That says someone, why did he say all those things and why did he do all that? Why did he feel he'd got to do it? And how was it that these Old Testament prophecies all indicate that that is going to take place? Where has this revelation come from? Why is there this revelation? Why must it be like this? Why must the Christ need suffer? That's the question. Why this cross? And you know, my friends, the Bible has only got one answer to that question. It was something that God had decided upon and had determined before he'd ever created this world. Him, says the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem, filled with the power and the understanding of the Spirit, him, he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The predetermined and counsel and foreknowledge of God, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, enacted in time, but it was determined there in, before the very dawn of history and before this world ever came into being at all. The Apostle Peter makes this very plain and clear in his first epistle in the first chapter. Listen. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him from the dead. And it's only as we grasp that that we begin to understand our Old Testament. You see, it was God who gave the knowledge and the information to the prophets. They didn't guess it. It wasn't imagination. God inspired them. He gave them the revelation. He let them know that the Messiah was going to suffer. And of course, he could do that because he determined it before the world was ever made. Why did he give Moses these types and sacrifices? Why did he tell them to kill the Paschal Lamb and to put the blood upon the doorposts? Oh, he was simply telling them beforehand what the Christ was going to do. God knew it before time and he gives these previews of it right away through the Old Testament. It is the predetermined knowledge and forecounsel of God. All right, says someone, I'll accept that, but now you leave me with this question. Why did God decide it was to happen in this way? You've proved conclusively, satisfactorily, that the Old Testament's full of it, that Christ says it must be, and it's all this revelation of God. But why? Why did God determine that it was to be like that? That's the question. 
And here, my friends, the answer is equally simple. It is the only way whereby any individual can be saved. I say that this is God's way of salvation through the crucifixion of his Son because there is no other way whereby we can be saved. I can prove that to you, I think, very simply in this way. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? You should visit Gethsemane tonight and during this coming week. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane, my friend, if you want to know the truth. And there you'll see this blessed Son of God taking three men with him, Peter and James and John, and he says to them, Stay here and pray for me while I go on on my own for a moment. And he went on and they slept, they were tired. Now what is he doing? Well, he is having this great struggle, and this is what he says. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Three times he prayed it. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass by me. What's he talking about? He's talking about this death that, that was coming on the cross. And what he prays is this, Father, he says, is there, no any, is there no other way whereby I can do this work? Must I die? Must it come to that? Must I go through that which will mean that I shall be separated from thee? Is there no other way? And the answer was that there was no other way. Oh, my dear friend, there's no need to argue about this. This is obvious, is it not, for this reason? Is it conceivable that if there had been any other way that God, our heavenly loving Father, would ever have allowed his Son to endure it all? I ask, is it possible that the eternal Father would ever have allowed the eternal sinless spotless Son to endure the agony of the nails and the suffering of his body and the abuse and the ignominy and the shame and all that was involved in it. Would he ever have allowed him to go through with it unless it was an utter absolute necessity? For a moment came upon that cross, you remember, when the son cried out saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Would that ever have been allowed if there was any other way which would have done the work? The question answers itself. The Christ must needs have suffered. Because if the Christ had not suffered, we would all suffer to all eternity the consequences of sin. It was the only way. Why was it the only way? There's the answer. The problem of sin. What is the problem of sin? Go to the third chapter of the epistle to the Romans and the apostle will give you the answer. Here it is. How can God at one and the same time remain just and justify those that believe in Jesus? You and I think that sin is a simple matter and that all that God has got to do is to forgive and to wink at it and in his great love to say, it's all right, I forgive you, as if nothing had happened. My dear friend, if you've argued like that, there's only one explanation of it, and that is you are so utterly ignorant of God's character and nature. 
God is eternally just and righteous and holy and he can't deny himself and he has said that the wages of sin is death and that the punishment of death and the punishment of sin is death and banishment out of his sight. Therefore, if we all receive the deserts of our sin, we should all die eternally and remain outside the life of God. That's the question. God in his love wants to forgive us, but how can he forgive us and remain just? He must do something about sin. I speak with reverence. And on the cross on Calvary's hill, he's done it. For what he did there, do you see, was this, as we saw in that 53rd chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. He hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's taken your sins and mine and put them on his son. And he has punished them in his son. That's what was happening on Calvary. It was the only way. It had to happen. It involved our Lord being separated from God and crying out the cry of dereliction. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why? Why, because of sin that has come between them. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's it. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. That was the way. And that is why the Christ must needs have suffered. God must punish sin. His own holy nature insists upon it. He has said so. He's revealed it. He's proclaimed it in his law. And he never changes. He's the everlasting God with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Sin must be punished. And on the cross on Calvary's hill, it was punishment. Surely he hath borne our griefs. He hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's our ills, it's our sorrows that he's borne. None of his own because he was sinless and perfect and without any guilt at all. It was ours. We do not know. We cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He died and suffered there. My friend, that's the question. Do you believe that? That's the whole message of the gospel. Your sin must be punished. And if it's punished in you, it means hell for you to all eternity. You can't be forgiven until your sin is dealt with. There's no question about that. It's the whole message of the Bible. Sin is enmity against God. Sin is arrogance, it's disobedience, it's lawlessness. And God has said he will punish it. 
and it must be punished. And if you bear that punishment you so richly deserve, you're doomed, you're damned, you're lost. But the whole message of the gospel is this, that this Jesus of Nazareth, the only begotten Son of God, God's appointed Messiah, Christ, Deliverer, Redeemer, came and took upon him your chastisement. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. That's why he needs must suffer. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could and can and has unlocked the gate of heaven and let us in. My dear friend, that's the message that comes to you. In your sin, do you see, do you believe, do you know that the Son of God has so loved you that he has died for you? If you do, I can test you very simply. If you really believe that, if you really believe now and that you see and say that you know, that the only thing that can give you forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God and open the gate of heaven for you is that the Son of God has died for your sins and borne your punishment. Well, if you believe that, it means that you won't waste a second. You'll go and thank him at once. If you haven't thanked him before, you'll thank him in this meeting now. And as I give you an opportunity in a quiet moment at the end, and you'll not only thank him, you'll say to him, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You'll say to him, I see now that I have been redeemed, I have been bought with a price. I am no longer mine own. I belong to thee. So you will give yourself to him willingly and readily and gladly. And henceforward, you will live only to his glory. You'll tell other people about him. You'll tell them what he's done. You'll boast in him and make your glory in him and in him alone. He will be the center of your life and the goal of your every endeavor. The Christ must needs have suffered. Oh, can you say this then with me? We do not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear. But can you now say this? But I believe it was for me. He died and suffered there. He did. Tell him so. Thank him for doing it. Show your gratitude by giving yourself to him and taking up your cross and following after him. Amen.
We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.